0: Hello again and welcome to the Distiller Podcast. I'm Brandon Dawson and today we are recording from New Riff Distillery. We're live at New Riff in Northern Kentucky. Um, in just a second we're going to talk a little bit about New Rift Distillery. But first I want to welcome uh, my guest for today, Matt Gunderman. He's the director of air care and mobile care at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. Matt, thank you, first of all, for, for joining us today.
1: Hey, this is great. Love coming out on a Sunday afternoon. Thanks. Perfect.
0: A little bourbon on a Sunday afternoon. Nothing better. Yeah, no reason not to do it. So uh, we'll dive in for a second and talk about, about what you do. Uh, first, I want to, um, first of all, Uh, say thank you to Hannah who's the general manager of New Rift Distillery for letting us come in today and for sharing some of your amazing things with us that we're going to taste here in just a second. Yeah,
2: we're happy to have you.
0: Cool. Um, we are, for people that have never been here, uh, New Rift Distilleries in uh, northern Kentucky, um, technically in, we were just talking about this, yeah. technically Newport. although we're on
2: the line of Newport and it Bellevue. It seems
0: like Bellevue. Yes. Okay, uh, physically in the, shares a parking lot with the party source. And if you've ever driven by and you've seen this beautiful uh, building that's been here a little while, 2014, mm-hmm. you opened. Um, I had no idea that everything... That exists in here does exist. Yeah. So tell us we're on the third floor. We're in uh-huh. the room. What room?
2: We call this the tower room. Okay. So the, uh, the distillery itself is basically wrapped in an event center. Uh-huh. And we're on the third floor, um, in a big, beautiful space with a terrace overlooking Bellevue. Yes. <laughs> the windows overlook Scenic Newport, Bellevue, Kentucky. Yeah. Um, yeah. we have lots of private events up here. We throw parties, um, we've done a lot of tastings. You name it has been in this room over the last three or four years.
0: Cool. And first of all, if people want to know more about New Riff, uh, the website?
2: The website, newriffdistilling.com. Okay. Uh, of course, on social, all the handles are at New Riff. Um, or come down and see us. Our yeah. tours are free Tuesday through Sunday. So we take you through the whole building. Unless there's a wedding or something going on up here, you get to see it from grain to barrel.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Very, very Cool. Well, tell us a little bit about what we're going to be tasting today.
2: Yeah, so I have two things. So you guys have a really successful podcast. Um, The first is we were playing around this week making a cocoa nib infused Manhattan. Mm. So this is a um, bourbon Manhattan made with our OKI single barrel whiskey, Contrato red vermouth, um, some bitters. And then we actually rested that or aged that on cocoa nibs, which is a way to impart some really tasty chocolate flavors without it being like super sweet and kind of kick you in the face. Yep. And I had made this big jar of it earlier in the week and hit it. And what is left, <laughs> as you guys see is a taste. We have, um, a rabid hungry group of distillers. Um, you know, we have a lot of leftover catering and it always disappears pretty quickly. So next time I'll hide it under my desk or something, right?
0: Um, but better. you guys
2: will be able to taste that. And then I also have, a bottle of our OKI single barrel. So this is whiskey that was actually distilled in Indiana. Mm -hmm. We uh, bought a handful of barrels before we opened because we're waiting for our bourbon and rye, New Rift's flagship products, to turn at least four years old. So in the waiting period, the last three and a half years, you know, people want bourbon. This is a wonderful bourbon. This is actually 11 years old, this barrel, um, 147, mm-hmm. and we just haven't changed the label yet. We'll change it next year when it turns 12, and essentially, OKI okay, will go extinct next year when our whiskeys come out, oh, so wow. if you like it, you know, get yourself a bottle, but it is a wonderful high rye bourbon. It's 35% rye in the mash bill, so it's mm-hmm. got a lot of spice. Um, we barrel at barrel-proof, non-chill filtered, so we don't cool it off and Scrape off all the good fats and oils out of the whiskey. Um, we are ideologically opposed to non-to uh, chill filtration, and I've got some rocks glasses for you. So I'll pour you a little something, and Great. then I'll leave you to should t- should away. Should we
0: taste the? Uh,
2: yeah, taste the Manhattan, and
0: tell us a little bit about like what what should we expect here? Or what are we looking for?
2: You know, a Manhattan is, like, one of the most classic bourbon cocktails you can imagine. One of the things that we really focus on here is, you know, quality of ingredients. And so mm-hmm. we use a really nice vermouth. It's an Italian vermouth. Um, and for me, the the chocolate infusion and the good vermouth really balances with the spice of the, the high rye whiskey. So it's got a... It's sweet, but without being, like, gut rot, sweet. Yeah. Um,
0: oh, it's really good.
2: It sh- it's really tasty.
0: It's really... You know, when you
2: have, like three good ingredients, yeah. and then you rest it on cocoa nibs for a week, it's, it's hard to go wrong yeah, with.
0: nothing. And so this isn't necessarily something people can buy, this.
2: No, but we can show you exactly how to make it. Okay. I mean, it's really simple. We love Manhattans and old fashions in the building. They are staples, anyone can make them. And then there's really fun ways to do little variations. Like this cocoa nib thing is something we've done for the holidays the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. It's always impressive at a party. Right you know, to be like, oh, this is a cocoa nib infused Manhattan. You'll score some Sounds big points. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can really do it with anything, but it goes great with with bourbon. And actually, it's really good with rye too. As all I was right. saying, this is a high rye bourbon, so yeah. the spice balances. But um, it's yummy. Yeah.
0: Excellent.
1: I like that it was rested on cocoa nibs. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
2: You have to learn in the bourbon industry to use words like rested yeah. and aged and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> it, so it, it
1: tastes rested. So yeah. I that, yeah.
2: Well, I will pass these to you guys. All right. A rocks glass with some of this stuff. Terry doesn't want hers with any ice, which nope. I respect She's greatly. She's a purist. Yeah. Yep.
0: I respect that. Yeah,
2: and you know, um, we always suggest to people here on our tours, which are free, uh, when we do a tasting, we, we try not to judge anyone. You want to drink your bourbon with Sprite or ice or neat or whatever, we're happy people are drinking uh, bourbon.
0: I, Sprite, I would judge. It depends, you know. No, I mean, I, you know, there's got to be a line.
2: There's a difference between public judgment
0: and
2: <laughs> in-your-own-mind judgment, you Fair know? Enough. Okay, um, good enough. As a company policy, New Rift Distilling does not judge based on what you drink uh-huh. your bourbon with. Um, but we do always suggest people to actually stick the very tip of their tongue down in the bourbon because that's the only part of your tongue that can taste sweet. Mm. And so some of that good, you know, kind of sugar, vanilla, caramel flavors really come through with just the tip of your tongue before you take a whole sip. But again... You guys drink however you like while you're talking, and awesome. we're, ha- we're happy to have you.
0: Thank you so much, you're Hannah. Welcome. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for the tasting hint there.
0: All right, so a little sip. I tried the uh, the first one. Now to compare, mm-hmm. just to wet the whistle a little bit. <sighs> really nice. Wow, yeah. I was telling Hannah, she, she just walked out. I was telling her I, d- I took a uh, bottle of this OKI bourbon, uh, down to Georgia for Thanksgiving and it was a hit. It did not last the first night. Yeah. So good stuff. I can attest. All right. Well, thanks again to uh, new Rift distillery. This is going to be good. Um, Matt, again, thank you. Really appreciate you joining us for the podcast. Even if we did have to bribe you, um, with, with amazing... <laughs> it, it was
1: pretty easy, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. It
0: doesn't, it doesn't take much. Yeah. Um, you have uh, an amazing title. You have an amazing job. I'm actually really interested to talk to you, but I do have to say that just even looking at your resume, um, you have a whole bunch of letters behind your name. Is that a nursing
1: industry <laughs> it, thing? It's a it's a nursing medical industry thing, and and uh, it's uh, I, I really uh, value education and continuing my education, and those letters represent me continuing to further my knowledge in my industry.
0: I, I said your official title is the Director of Air Care and Mobile Care at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. You tell yes. me, what do you do?
1: <laughs> I, uh, I, I think I have a, a really fantastic job. I do a lot of stuff. So I'll, I'll step back just a little bit in that I got into this job because I was a flight nurse mm-hmm. uh, for University Air Care and Mobile Care for for a bunch of years and a lot of history before that. But uh, uh, and and I kind of worked my way through and realized after a bunch of years that I wanted to impact more than just a single patient on the helicopter. Mm-hmm. And how can I do that? And so I got into the to the management world. Uh, what I do now as the director, officially I'm over everything that has to do with air care and mobile care, so our, our aircraft and our ambulances and a few other... Uh, uh, other uh, areas of the hospital that cover, special events where we cover medical, provide medical coverage for sporting events, things of that nature. Uh, but mostly, it's it's the it's the aircraft and the ambulances from uh, from clinical care mm-hmm. to FAA regulations to uh, wow. building codes with how to build a helipad and yep. what lighting you need to to everything aviation and medical really.
0: Okay, and just in case, I mean, I think you've made it clear, but air care. This is helicopter rescue. This is the helicopter, if you live in Cincinnati, that's taking off from the University of Cincinnati campus. Urgent rescue. Yep. Um, So, And you flew. You're not flying now, but you flew for many years uh, on those crews.
1: Yeah, so I flew full-time for about eight years. And uh, I fly occasionally now, still get in the ground ambulances once in a while. uh, But uh, I'm I'm primarily on the uh, administrative and management side now.
0: Let's go back uh, a little bit. You started out. You were uh, a paramedic, uh, firefighter, paramedic. Yes. Is that the right nomenclature? Yeah,
1: yeah, firefighter, paramedic.
0: Okay, so yes. you're in the ambulance, and the how fire many, trucks. How many yep. years doing that?
1: So mm-hmm. I did that for I did that initially for about five or six years, and and I I you know I I got into this. I I went to. Uh, college on a on an odd mountain biking scholarship but uh thinking i was going to be a, a forest ranger that sounds like um, a story th- there's, 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 there's more there's more to that yeah not, that not a lot of colleges mean? have uh, uh the, the college offered a uh, had a had a mountain bike race on their on their property in the in the woods uh that was kind of big in ohio and hmm. in west virginia and one of the prizes that they offered was uh scholarships to their school and wow. i specifically was planning to go to school so my mountain bike team and myself went up there and uh we had a very strong mountain bike team and um and i got free tuition nice (laughs) from uh, from doing well at some mountain bike races um but yeah so i wanted to be a, a park ranger so went up there for for that and uh i was uh too young and uh, slightly averse to carrying a gun, which is part of the park ranger uh, thing that you got to do mm-hmm. and thought I wanted to uh, get into uh, knowing how to care for people in the back country. And so I went to EMT school there and really got pulled right into the medical aspect of that. So went directly into uh, paramedic school uh, and then came back to Cincinnati, uh, started working as a paramedic and got my firefighting uh, certification.
0: Okay. So what was it that pulled you in? Because that's a question that I kind of ask everybody. Is this something you thought you would do from an early age or is it something you sort of figured out along the way? It sounds like it's something kind of found you at a certain point. What was it at that point that, um, that really pulled you into that aspect of it?
1: Yeah, I, uh, Mm. it's interesting after I had been in that profession for, for many, many years, and it was probably just about 10 years ago that I ran into a friend from grade school who reminded me that I had completely forgotten. And and she said, I always thought that's what you would do. Um, and I hadn't seen her since like fifth grade. And she reminded me of some instances in grade school and, and things for uh, caring about people that were injured on the playground or something of that nature. Uh, and and I, in, in my mountain bike racing and road racing career, I, I came across some other injuries. I uh, uh, was on a, uh, a road crew at a professional bike race and, uh, was the first one to come upon a, a professional bike racer who went off the road into some trees and died of a head injury and tried to care for, for him
0: without at that point, any no medical, medical
1: training, training uh, at all. Um, and so I, I, think I had a few instances in my life before that, that maybe started to help me gravitate, maybe unknowingly to wanting to be in, in that kind of profession.
0: What in those instances, cause I would imagine you have a million of those stories since like, is there a part of you that turns on, I mean, some people sight of blood, obviously they become squeamish. Other people just wouldn't know what to do, which just freeze up seeing that kind of a uh, person in that kind of danger. Even in those, before you had medical training, what happens in you when you see somebody in need like that?
1: I, you mm. know, I, I think in, in more so as I get older, I think I have a desire to just help people mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons or in a lot of ways, whether that's medical or in their life or whatever it is. And I think just being a caring person is, and then not being the squeamish type, I think Mm -hmm. helps out a lot. Uh, I like to fix problems and I like to fix things. And that is what uh, really critical care medicine is all about.
0: Right on. So tell me again, you may have already said this, how many years did you spend in the helicopter?
1: So uh, I was a full-time flight nurse for about eight years. Okay. Yep.
0: And all here at the University of yeah. Cincinnati. Yep. Okay. Tell me a little bit. I mean, I don't want to get into like, tell me your stories. Um, I would imagine you have a million of them, but tell me about that work. Like what did those yeah. days look like? <laughs> um, what kind of hours were you working? Uh, you know, what's yeah. the, what's, what's going on when you're not flying?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, so the, the life of a flight nurse is uh, typically 12-hour shifts, mm-hmm. working 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. or 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, you come in. Uh, How many days a week? Th- uh, typically, if you're full-time, three or four, but okay. usually you're picking up extra. Okay. Um, coming in and you're, you are on from the time you clock in to potentially being called out for a, uh, for a flight... Uh, So you come in, you check your aircraft. So you have to make sure all your medical equipment is appropriate. Uh, That can take anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour plus, depending on what's going on. And making sure that the aviation side of the business is doing well. Mm -hmm. So your pilot is doing aviation checks. They're making sure that the maintenance is good on the aircraft. There's mechanics that are in checking the, uh, the engines and everything like that. So kind of like that first hour or two of your shift, if you don't have a flight during that time, you're really preparing for the rest of, of the day, uh, seeing if something's broken, something needs to be fixed, whatever that may be.
0: How many people in the crew?
1: So the, the great thing about uh, about uh, university's air care program is we fly with uh, physicians and advanced practice nurses along with the uh, critical care flight nurses, which is a lot different. Most places uh, fly with a lesser trained crew. Hmm. Uh, but you have two medical people and one pilot okay. as your primary crew. So the pilot strictly flies. The medical people don't, don't fly. A lot of people ask if uh, the Highlight is medicine trained and mm-hmm. he's not because we want him to focus on that complex job of flying the aircraft. Is that
0: relationship between the aviation people and the medical people
1: it's, tight. It's very tight. Okay, so you oh, guys yeah. are
0: you're living together during that yeah, time and yeah, yeah. working together. Okay.
1: Yep. Yep. Okay. Having dinner afterwards and mm-hmm. everything. Uh, you you got to be tight on a team like that mm-hmm. uh, because you you have to understand what people's strengths and weaknesses are, uh, even whether they're a pilot or a medical person, whether you're a physician, a nurse, a paramedic, an EMT. Uh, if you have a team. Uh, it's always different. You have to know where people's strengths and weaknesses. No, are you are.
0: consistently on the same team or are no? You rotating it, it does with different rotate. People?
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so it's a big team, and you mm-hmm. get to know people, uh, and I kind of like that. Some some teams are very small, right? It might be three people. Uh, our team is a lot larger. And you, you really got to get to know the nuances, but it's really also makes it important that the first p- part of your shift, mm-hmm. you're spending talking about what's going on, okay. right? And we expect our people to come in and if they're stressed in their life for that day or they've been hmm. sick or they didn't get enough rest, that they're sharing that with the crew and making some decisions about wow. safety and, and whatnot to say, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm feeling great. I got 10 hmm. hours of sleep or you know what? My child was up in the middle of the night. I'm a bit fatigued. Uh you know, because that, that can play a part through the day.
0: What would you do? Somebody comes in and they're like, I'm not fit for this. Do you, do you swap them out immediately? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. If someone comes in and says, I, I am too tired to work or I'm ill, I can't fly, mm-hmm. uh, they don't fly. There's okay. no question.
0: You yeah. say, why didn't you call us before you came yeah, in? Yeah, right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Why'd you show up today? Yeah. Uh, but no, we, uh, we, we, uh, we have a saying that is uh, uh, all to fly, one to say no. So it takes the agreement of everyone on the aircraft and mm. in our communication center, mm-hmm. uh, our dispatchers, to agree to take a flight. If any one person for any reason says, no, I don't feel that this is safe for any reason. To you the don't, flight itself? To the flight itself, you don't fly.
0: Okay. And that can be based on weather. It can be based on the, the equipment, Personal, the
1: aircraft. Personal, everything. Yep. Okay. Yep.
0: How many, on average, how many flights a day? Or how, yeah, per shift?
1: Yeah, so we we do uh, just under last year we did just under fifteen hundred patient flights, uh, but that's divided between three aircraft. Okay. Uh, so you could have a day where you have eight flights, mm-hmm. and you could have two or three days where you don't have a single flight, especially in winter when the you know if you have freezing rain, you have uh, conditions where you could get icing on the rotor blades. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just won't won't fly.
0: Okay. Yeah. And in that case, it's it's whatever. Ground-based services are available. Yeah, ground ba- yep,
1: ground-based Yep, ground services. And also our helicopters, because we also uh, maintain a fleet of ground ambulances, mm-hmm. sometimes our helicopter crews will go out on those ground ambulances oh, okay. uh, and respond.
0: So um, I kind of, I know there's a tendency to say, like, tell me your worst stories. Tell me, like, situations, not things you've seen, not people, not the horror stories for that. Tell me physical situations of weather or risk. Yeah. Um, that have been troubling to you that you've gotten into. Hmm.
1: Well, I appreciate that question because uh, most people do want to know that horror story for which there's a, a thousand. And uh, what really um, is is I think more interesting is exactly what you said is the situations that uh, that people get themselves into mm-hmm. and that we uh, that we respond to. Um, there, there are so many. I'll, I'll, I'll go back to one maybe before I was even a flight nurse. Uh, one of the situations where I was a, a paramedic uh, and that really solidified my desire to become a flight nurse. And uh, I was actually uh, riding along River Road on my uh, motorcycle studying for my nursing board exams. I'd been a paramedic for a bunch of years and so I was, uh, had my helmet on and had uh, some earfo- earplugs in my, uh, in my ears and I was listening to review tapes for this big test. Uh, and I see a uh, uh, police officer behind me, lights and siren, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get a ticket. I was driving too fast or something of that nature. And he just he goes by me very quickly, and I think, oh, gosh, I'm not going to get a ticket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I look up ahead, and I see a big column of smoke up ahead. And uh, within 30 seconds, I'm at that column of smoke, which is a uh, car on fire, uh, two other cars involved in, in this head-on accident. Uh, and I was the, the first medical person there. And I, uh, I kind of rode my motorcycle through the, uh, through the cars there, parked it on the other side, came back. Uh, a few people were out of their vehicles, significantly burned. Uh, there was one person in a vehicle uh, that was uh, right next to the burning vehicle, and he was unconscious uh, and needing a lot of care. Uh, and so a lot of my, uh, paramedic training and whatnot came into play, uh, soon after that, a couple minutes later, a fire truck that was at a parade, uh, came up on the the scene and there was, I think just one or two EMTs, uh, there. So I proceeded to, to treat and care for the guy in the burned car. Uh, luckily I had my leather uh, motorcycle coat on because the heat from the fire was, uh, pretty unbearable. Um, and what had what
0: caused the fire MP-
1: Uh the, one of the cars that crossed the yellow line was carrying was uh, had a trailer with a race car that had some sort of race car fuel yeah uh, so that that exploded Uh Ultimately, uh, it, was a, it was a big uh, big to-do, as you can imagine. Uh, a lot of work getting that guy out of his car quickly before uh, any of us burned. Mm-hmm. Um, but air care came. Okay. And air care came and flew three people from that scene. And so I was there that entire time. And I had experiences with air care from being a paramedic in the region anyway, but that was my first really close experience where I was caring for those patients in that situation. Uh, and I was just uh, immensely impressed. Mm. And it really made me think you know what that is what i want to do Um, how long
0: after that was it that you headed that direction
1: well i started heading in that direction Mm -hmm. right then okay but it takes a long time we it's very uh it's very hard to get a to get on the helicopter at university Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a very competitive uh program because it's a desired uh position as a is a nurse uh it takes a lot of a lot of years of experience. Their their minimum requirements or our minimum requirements are very high. So it took took a lot of years. It, uh, it was uh, ten years after I got my uh, okay. my nursing license before I got on air care. And uh, all of those years, I dedicated to trying to get that job.
0: And that seems to me, from what I know about your story, sort of um, you. There was a long, intentional commitment to development and education to get to the next step. So you, it takes you 10 years to get from that first inkling of awareness that this might be the right position to you, and then you get in there, and then you realize that maybe you can do more good in, a, in an administrative or manage, management position in the program. How, um, talk about that then, because you start flying. There's a whole area around that, but I think um, I've known you for better part of 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um most of that time I think you've sort of been in school in the process of getting to where you are now. Yep. Um talk about those those decisions once you you got into that place. What was your awareness? Was there a similar um experience that said, okay, the next stop is somebody who's overseeing the program, or was it more organic than that? Uh
1: I, yeah. I like the word organic. Yeah. Uh accidental maybe. Um uh, <laughs> No, I, uh, I, I, was, uh, I was really happy as a, uh, as a flight nurse, mm-hmm. uh, as being on the helicopter and making that, that daily patient contact mm-hmm. and being, being the guy doing the procedures, uh, doing the skills on the, on the patients and, and really being involved in, in their care and everything aviation-wise. Uh, I ended up going back to school, going to graduate school, Uh, to uh, become a nurse practitioner with a focus in critical care medicine with adults. And it was near the end of that that, uh, you know, as as an adult with a child, with a family, you're in graduate school, you're working full time. Mm -hmm. My mom was uh, dying of cancer at the time. I was pretty maxed out on what was going on in my life. And uh, ultimately, I needed a break. Uh, so the, uh, the program came to me and asked if I wanted to be a, uh, be one of the clinical managers Mm. to help run the, run the program. Um, and I, it's not something that I had thought about prior to that. (laughs) And although I'd been an educator and a clinician for a long time, I never thought of really formalizing it in that manner. Mm -hmm. So I thought about it for a little while. They actually let me do a trial run for three months and said, Hey, we'll hold your position as a flight nurse and we'll let you get into this clinical manager position for three months, see if it works out for you. And it did, I I liked it a lot. I, I liked impacting a lot bigger Uh, bigger projects. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really feel though, you know, I I used to take care of a single patient at a time typically, or a few, if we were at a mass casualty incident at a time. And now I really feel like I get to impact the care of all the patients that the people in our program uh, transport. So it's very different because I'm not as hands on with Mm -hmm. the clinical care. Uh, but my impact in being able to support them in providing that, that clinical care is super important to me.
0: That's interesting because I think there's, in in, in many industries that you can think of that are, that are service or care oriented, there's a transition between actually caring for people and managing the care of people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Academics, for instance, you're teaching people and then you take on an administrative position and then you're no longer teaching people. Right. And a lot of people sort of feel like they lose the impact at that point. It doesn't sound like that's been the case for you. It sounds like you still feel directly connected to the people that you care for, even if you aren't necessarily hands-on.
1: I do. Yeah, I, I very much do. I, because I want I, to I care for my staff in the same way. Mm. Um, they're not... Uh, they're they're not disengaged from me or I'm not disengaged from them. Mm-hmm. I'm very involved in the clinical care and the clinical reviews with our, with our staff. Um, but I also still do transports. Mm-hmm. So I still, uh, get out there some, um, I've been uh, temporarily for the last four or five months, I've uh, been the director of the emergency department at, uh, university of Cincinnati medical center also. And I've been, uh, going back because I have the opportunity to, to be in an ER nurse also at times, hmm. uh, it's not something I have to do as a director, it's not expected of me. In fact, it's, you know, and they need me to do other stuff. Yeah. Uh but sometimes uh, uh you know and I it, it it's my option. It helps me be a better director to stay in touch with patients. How does
0: the the position that you currently hold change how you do that work when you do it? Do you view it differently oh, when yeah. you're doing
1: it? <laughs> oh yeah. I I think the patient care side is is Pretty similar. The clinical aspect of it is the same. I really, uh, I, I really understand the impact of providing great customer service now in a way that I didn't before. Mm. And people don't think of uh, healthcare, especially in, in critical situations, as providing customer service like you might on a retail scale. And it's not. It's very different than that. Uh, in fact, I kind of I don't like the term customer service in, in healthcare, but that is the the in vogue term right now because yeah. uh, people often don't have a choice to come to your hospital like they do to go to a retail right. place. Uh, so, I, so I look at that, that patient experience a lot differently than I used to, in a, and it's a, in, in a great way. Like I, I'm, I'm, If I ever wanted to go back to being strictly a clinician again, I think I would be immensely better than I was because I understand the business aspect and the, the customer service side in a different way than I did before. Uh,
0: what do you bring uniquely to the management aspect of it? Um, in that uh, in the oversight now not talking so much about the direct patient care or customer care but when you're thinking about the work that you did for the years that you were in an ambulance the years that you were in the helicopter and now trying to be a great leader and manager for your team and for your program I guess both directions how does the work that you did all those years inform who you want to be for that and then what do you think is unique about your perspective in managing and leading that program that you want to put your stamp on it right now
1: yeah. So, uh, so my employees mm-hmm. are EMTs, paramedics, nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, indirectly, uh, and a, and a bunch of other people. Um, and I, am the third director of uh, of University's Air Care Program. It opened in 1984. So, uh, to be you know 33, 34 years strong and just be the third director of the program is is a pretty powerful yeah. to me. Um, I, I'm also the first person uh, that's a director that was an EMT, that was a paramedic, that really? was also a flight nurse, was also an ambulance nurse, also worked previous? in our communications. Uh, Dudley Smith, who still works for us, uh, started the program. Wonderful, uh, wonderful man, great vision. Started the program as part of his graduate school project at University of Cincinnati. Um, but didn't come from a he was hands-on an, background. Well, he was an EMT. Uh, so he had a hands-on background but was uh, getting more into the management side I, the, and the and then the director right before me she was also a critical care nurse okay. the difference is i've i i've done all the jobs okay. not just one of them and so
0: so it wasn't I, they were pure administrators who came in without no, any sense gosh, they no, just it's didn't always touch been, everything the yeah way
1: okay. yeah i just i i'm able to look at the entire program differently i think than uh, than people in the past, and, and I think there's benefits and faults to that, right? Because you, you always bring something strong, and you bring you know things that aren't aren't as strong. Um, so I think that's what I that, that's probably my strengths is I've done all of the jobs mm-hmm. before, and I can relate pretty well. My my vision is a little different. My uh, management team sometimes calls it Matt's world, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm amused by that because uh, and I like that. Uh, healthcare and especially health care at an academic hospital uh, is very tradition, very traditional. It's, uh, it's a lot of old thinking. Uh, this and is the way we've always done this it. This is the way we've always done it. And mm-hmm. it, it, you see it's, this is the way we've done it for 200 years, yeah. right? They've been around for, for a very, very long, uh, long time. And that tradition is an anchor, mm. right? It doesn't let you progress very, very well. So, I don't, I don't have that, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not a, I don't have those traditional anchors. I want to do things differently. I read a lot of books on different subjects, different types of uh, management and leadership, and I, I want to bring a different perspective to healthcare leadership than what is traditionally out there. And I think there's a lot of people like me right now who realize that we got to look at things differently. We're forced to because of the economics of healthcare that are going on right now. Uh, But also the emergence of really great clinical care. You know, the science behind taking care of people has been changing rapidly Hmm. and it's hard to keep up with it. So we really, we can't, you know, what I tell my folks is what we were doing last year, if we're not doing it differently this year, then we're behind. Mm-hmm. And that's clinically and operationally.
0: What, what's controversial about what you might do versus somebody else? Or what you wanna do?
1: <laughs> that's probably a good uh, question for some of my, uh, my staff that might not appreciate all, my, uh, <laughs> all the things that I wanna, wanna do. What uh what what I really look at differently is that with air care, such a strong pillar of the community. We are really a community resource, even though we're 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 at University Hospital, we support all the hospitals, all the EMS agencies in Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. Hmm. Um is that uh I don't I'm I'm not trying to make air care successful for the next two years or three years. Five year plans whatever, right? Uh, I want AirCare to be there in 30 years. Hmm. And so I have a much different long-term vision than I think most people in healthcare have now. Healthcare right now is really a uh, a lot of people trying to make immediate changes to immediate problems. And and they don't have the opportunity often, and I sometimes don't either. I'm I'm often putting out fires to have that really long-term strategic plan. To me, when someone says our long-term strate- strategic plan is five years, yeah. Well, if you know, if you own a gas station, maybe that's okay. <laughs> but if you're in a healthcare institution that's been around for two hundred years that you want to be around in another, you, you got to be lo- thinking long term. Uh, so you got to be able to mix those short-term actions and make sure that they feed right in with the with a long-term strategic plan. That's to me is thirty years.
0: Okay, and I mean, is that primarily? Technology based? Is it care based? Is it? um, What are the things that you're trying to pull in that there's resistance to in order to think that far ahead?
1: Yeah, uh, I would probably the number one thing is is quality. Okay. Uh, There's a lot of different types of air medical programs in the country. Uh, There's a few that are really large, for-profit medical programs that are traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Mm. Uh, Their business model is to make the the cost of care or what they pay for the cost of care as little as possible, they charge significantly higher than anyone else. So they have a profit margin yep. so that they can sell, uh, you know, sell stocks. And one of them just got bought by another equity firm. They're owned by equity firms. Uh, their bottom line is their stock price. My bottom line is lives saved. Uh. And that means quality. Mm-hmm. So the, the quality of care that we provide, I, I kind of say that university of Cincinnati medical center and in the same as probably at other academic medical centers that have a helicopter program is we're like the Nordstrom's uh, if you were a retail and mm-hmm. some of the other medical programs are like a Walmart, right? Okay. They're out in the rural communities. Uh, a lot of people like them. Uh, you can go and get your, you know, your plastic wear and your you know, jeans made out of the country very cheaply and they'll last about that long. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does, it's, it's, we're we're more of a, a boutique medical service um, because we reinvest every dollar back into taking care of patients. There's uh, there's no money being made in my program. We're 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 a break even. Uh, we push the limits on on clinical care that others don't. We. Uh, we have more research out there that is impacting the clinical care of medical programs all around the world right now that comes out of the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. We, so we do a lot of research. We push other people to be better. Mm. Um, and, and that's really our goal is to not only provide great care here, but to, to be a leader for the entire world.
0: This is why I love having these conversations is because you think, I, I don't know what you do. I don't know how you spend your day. And I know what you do. But then when you start to get into the nitty gritty of sort of what somebody's daily concerns are and uh, see what makes them passionate about what they do. I mean, that makes me proud of what you do. It makes me proud that we have uh, this service here in Cincinnati that we may not know, that people may not know enough about it and enough about what you do and the mechanics of it um, to understand that it's, it's kind of something special that we have available to us, not only in terms of the standard of care that we have, but in terms of... Uh, the approach that it takes, especially when compared to the rest of who knew that there was an industry around this, of course, there's an industry around this and, and that what we have available to us in Cincinnati is, um,
1: is protected
0: to some degree against the negative aspects of the industry.
1: We're, yeah, we're trying, but, it, you know, Walmarts are popping up and yeah. Nordstrom's are closing. And I'm that's surprised to
0: hear you say this. You think there's something <laughs> wrong with our healthcare industry. I, it's I've odd, not isn't heard that it? before. I
1: know. I apologize for uh, <laughs> bursting that healthcare bubble for you. But it, it, it's, it's happening. It's happening. Oh, crap. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. So, we, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to still be a super high quality program hmm. and we're trying to be really safe. Uh, Helicopters are generally safe, but uh, if they're not operated at the highest quality, then they crash and people die, right? And that happens in medical helicopters. We, We push safety. Our number one value at our program is safety. Our second value is clinical excellence. Because if we can't fly there or drive there in one of our ambulances safely and return the patient safely, yep. it doesn't matter how good our, our clinical care yeah. is. Uh, so we tell our patients, or not our patients, our staff, uh, we have a, a motto is if they're, if they're confronted as to what am I supposed to do in this situation, We say, first, decide what is the safest way to do it. Second, decide what's best for the patient. And if your decision is positive on both of those, then we're going to support whatever you decided to do. Whether it's written in our policies or not, you made the right decision.
0: That actually brings up something that I wanted to talk to you about because the notion of safety um, as you conceive of it is probably pretty different um, than as most people. Uh, Some of the materials that I've that i've got that terry gave me and sort of setting this up for you um and getting ready for the interview are um talks that you've done on safety and preventable errors and things like that what do people um i guess i have a a couple of different questions about this i kind of want to ask like what do you know that we don't know that we should (laughs) what do you wish we would do um You know, you said you used to ride a motorcycle. I don't know if you still do. You, you, I, I know you still mountain bike a lot. Like, what does safety mean in terms of people's daily lives? And if you had sort of a soapbox to get on and say, people, don't be stupid. What, what are your top, <laughs> uh, what do you uh, want to oh say gosh. to people in that context?
1: Uh, all right, I have to be careful because I'm not speaking to, to my own kind here. We have a different uh, sense of humor. So I'll be, thoughtf- which is, I'll be which thoughtful is actually, with that. Which is actually, no, literally is
0: one of my other questions is I want to know what the sense of humor yeah, is. I well, assume that you guys make fun of us civilians in a way that we have no yeah, understanding you know, the, of, and I uh, want to know what that is too.
1: The, yeah, we'll come back to that uh, <laughs> in a mild flavor. But uh, um, I, so I, I'm uh, I'm a bit of a safety guru in medical transport. So I've, uh, some of those letters after my name have to do with specialty certifications. It took years okay. to get uh, based on education in, uh, safety management for medical transport systems. So I'm a little, I'm a little odd in, in that, even in my industry. Um, so when we look at risk, we look at what is, uh, how much risk are you willing to take? Right. So, uh, I used to rock climb, still do a little bit. I'm mountain bike now. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, there's risk involved in that. I can decide to go down that very steep hill that, uh, that has a lot of roots, or I can decide not to, um, when I'm riding with other people, uh, what their permissible risk is, is different than mine. Right. Mm-hmm. And I might have more, uh, permissible risk and they might have less or vice versa. So with, a uh, with risk analysis, you, you have to kind of bring the science into it and say, well, not only is what is an individual's uh, tolerable risk, but what is the program's or industry's mm. tolerable risk? Mm-hmm. Uh, so before each of our flights, uh, we do a risk assessment. There's a, a, a f- basically a form, it's electronic, that's filled out by the pilot that the crew has input on as to what is our risk analysis for this flight. And if it falls into a certain category, different things change. Now, having a high-risk category on a risk analysis doesn't automatically mean that you don't do something. Mm-hmm. So the goal with a risk analysis, and, and, I, and uh, people are going to think I'm some sort of weird safety nerd. I'm, I'm not. I do a lot of stupid stuff just like anyone else. Um, but you think about how can I pull the risk down. All right. So if I have a risk assessment, which is a level of red, which means stop, I'm not going to do this. It doesn't mean I necessarily just stop and cancel everything related to that. It says, okay, now what made it red? And what can I do to bring that risk down to a manageable level or to a, a, a level that we, we agree is, is mm-hmm. a go on this? So a high risk assessment isn't, isn't a stop necessarily, or it might be a temporary stop to say, hey, what can we do? All right. You know, if you're, if you're something simple is, uh, you know, you have ice on your sidewalk, right? Because it, there was a freezing rain last night and you think, oh, my gosh, I, you know, I'm not very stable on that. I'm not going to go outside. All right. You, hit, you did a self-assessment. You did a risk analysis. You right. said red. I'm not going anywhere. What we would do is say, well, that is a, that is a red. Can we bring that down to a yellow? By putting some salt out there, chipping the ice, waiting two hours for it to melt and still achieve the goal that we wanted to achieve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously in our industry, that's a, it's a lot different. We're not just chipping ice away. Um, so it, it's doing different things.
0: Um, what Do you take that approach in your personal life? <laughs> I mean, it's obviously a, a systematic approach that you use here. Does it cross over?
1: Uh, I, I think about it, but I don't, uh, I would You're never, a list. I, no, I'm not checking a list and I don't verbalize these things. Yeah. Uh, do I wish that our, uh, forks could be loaded with the tines down in our dishwasher in case you tripped and <laughs> fell on them? Yes, I do. I think about that every time there, there's stupid little things I'm like a tines that. Up person. <laughs> you know what? Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. You know, do they get cleaner with the tines up? I don't know, but what happens when that three-year-old's over and he's reaching how does, in? How does this change how you parent? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, so my son today, uh, uh, skateboarded over to an abandoned building, uh, with friends where they climbed a fence to go up a fire escape onto like the fourth floor where there's an open window. All of and this he sounds went, perfect. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, that's, that's cool. So, um, I don't know that it I guess it changes my parenting in that uh, last night when he was telling me about this and uh, with Nicole, we were talking, well, tomorrow, you know, it's supposed to be freezing overnight, so there's probably going to be some ice. Uh-huh. So be careful that when you're on the roof of that building, <laughs> don't slip off. But, and, and that's where that risk analysis comes in, right? Informally is we, we didn't say don't do it. Right. Right. Probably probably the police probably should have said that should have stepped in. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, it's how do you minimize that risk and still stay safe. Mm -hmm. And it's cool because uh, my son does that a lot when whether he's climbing mountain biking or going exploring abandoned buildings as a as a youngster. And and he got some great photographs there. Um, He's thinking about that risk. And that's what you know, if we if we put more of that into society, um, I think we we might be better off. But I, I know not everyone thinks the same way I do.
0: Yeah, but I, there's two ways to go with that. One is you're aware of the risks and you never let your son out of the house. The other is you're aware of the risks and you tell your son how to minimize them and you right. make him smarter and you recognize that they're going to happen. Yeah. What risks do you take that we would be surprised by? Is there anything uh, that you do that like we would assume that you would never that you well, would never? You do?
1: know, I, so I I load the dishwasher with the tines <laughs> up and it's crazy every time. Uh, crazy <laughs> I know, I know. I got to.
0: Strike the matches with just, the cover I open. I just let
1: loose once yeah. in a while. Um, I'm not as risky as I used to be, but I want to get back into it. Honestly, I've been thinking about this for for the last year. I used to uh, I used to mountain bike. I mountain bike raced. I rock climbed. I would free climb without ropes. Um, and uh there was a lot of risk in mm-hmm. in that and i think i transferred that risk once i got into being a, a paramedic and a firefighter and the risk involved with you know dealing with the buildings and going into burning buildings and then the air medical industry uh has risk obviously uh, or maybe not obviously it's a very risky profession mm-hmm. um and now that I've been in management for, for a number of years, I'm, I've realized over the last year that what I've been missing in my life is that risk. Hmm. I've been getting back into mountain biking and trail, uh, trail running. Um, and that's been, that's been great. Hmm. So I'm trying to trying decide what, what am I going to do more to, to keep that part of my life that was so important to me when I was younger.
0: The other part of, you know, kind of the reason that I didn't necessarily want to talk about, like, tell me the the worst thing you've seen is because that stuff leaves marks. Um, and I don't have to, you don't have to tell us those stories to know that, that that's there. Um, what do you do... Granted, you're a little bit removed from that now and that you're flying less, but you're still yep. flying a little bit. You're still going out. Um, what do you do in the rest of your life that makes you okay with that? Like how conscious are those things that you do and um, what do you do to relieve the pressure of the things that you've seen or the things that you might see next week?
1: Yeah, so uh, yeah, now that I'm not flying uh, like I used to, I'm not not in those situations as, as much. I still see them in the emergency department when they come in, um, there's a, there, there's a lot to that. So, uh, there's a, yeah, there's a history in my mind of, uh, some of those events that will never leave my mind But <laughs> you know, some of them I wish they would. And some of them, I'm glad they don't, even though they're not good events, uh, cause they change you in maybe not good ways, but ways that become part of you. Um, I, I really need, uh, to be able to remove myself. So I'm, uh, uh, am my own person. Um, I get into the woods a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh you know my Saturday mornings my favorite thing is to be out in the woods and Uh, making tea and sitting by sitting by a tree watching some deer or uh, going down by the river which uh, uh, I did today I was up early I had to go into work today for a while and so I got out for an hour and brought my camping stove and a pot of water and my tea and sat by the uh, unfortunately I couldn't go very far but there's some great parts of the Mill Creek if you're Cincinnati and you won't believe it but there's some wonderful parts of the Mill Creek and uh sat there along the Mill creek and watched the fog come up off the river as the sun came up and that's uh, uh i got to remove myself completely from work sometimes.
0: Mhm. You mentioned tea a couple of times. Tea's uh, something you you actually care. You're you're not mentioning that because it just happens oh. to be tea.
1: Oh no, I'm a big tea guy. Tell yeah. me tell me about that. <laughs> uh so, so I got into tea. I don't drink coffee. Mm-hmm. So I got into tea. Why don't I mean I I never liked the smell of it. Okay. So I don't know. I wish I did because I'd love that much caffeine. Sure. So uh, (laughs) uh, when I was in graduate school uh, and I was uh, staying up till three and four in the morning, uh, I needed caffeine, and I don't typically drink sodas and things like that. So Mm. I started drinking tea, and then I started. Investigating tea and different kinds of tea and fermented teas and smoked teas and Chinese versus Korean versus Japanese and uh, the the brewing methods and all of that sort of stuff so i'm a'm a, I'm a uh, you go quite pretty deep I'm pretty deep yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah' yeah I love tea yeah
0: and unsurprisingly sort of applying the same rigor of learning that got all those letters behind your name to your to your personal hobbies
1: probably yep at least that one
0: <laughs> <laughs> is that something um you are, I don't know what the career path is. I don't know, um, and I guess I'd be interested in in knowing that. So there's two questions there. You have um, apparently taken a long and fairly arduous but continually forward-moving career path to get to where you are now. Is there something that you're striving for now? And if if there is, whether that lies within your professional life or within something that might be after your professional life or, or along with it, like, what are you looking forward to for the future?
1: Yeah, well, I, mm. uh, I, I love what I do, uh, but it's, uh, very hard and it's a lot of hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was my seventh day straight of work. Um, most of my days, uh, at work are 10 or 12 hours. Uh, it, it's, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. And I i am so passionate about what I do there and in, in the program, the flight program, the ground program, and the patients that we care for, which is why I give that. Uh, but I am, I'm looking to pull back at some point. Mm. It's not going to be in the next year or two. Uh, I don't know what that is. I, uh, you know, I think back of, uh, uh, you know, what got me into this was going to school to be a park ranger. Hmm. And uh, I'm not going to go be a, Park ranger, but I have thought about being one of those volunteers at the parks. Uh, but I don't know what I'm going to do. I love being outside. Uh, if I could be outside, whether it's uh, sun, rain, snow, it doesn't make any difference. I, ha- I have a lot of I have a lot of interests. Um, I really wish I was one of those people that had a single interest and I followed that passion perfectly through my entire life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those people are wonderful. I wish I was one. It seems so much easier. <laughs> There's yeah. so much I want to do. Uh, and, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the next step is. I really want another phase of a professional life mm-hmm. that may be completely out of healthcare, uh, or it may be doing something just different, uh, within healthcare. I've invested a lot in this. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm not am not at all afraid to to jump into something else if it if it comes up. But uh, I'm I'm just uh, I'm really embedded in our in our medical transport program right now. And, right on. Yeah.
0: Well, I really uh, appreciate you taking the time. I really appreciate. I I love just finding out what somebody else does. And you mentioned you know somebody who has that that singular linear path. I've always sort of wondered who those people are, and I've never <laughs> been that person, which is why we're doing this. But um, just learning a little bit more about what you do and seeing getting a little insight into how you care about it is is really wonderful. So thanks for, for taking the time ah, with us. This has been
1: great. Thank really you. really
0: appreciate it. This episode of the Distiller Podcast was recorded live at New Riff Distilling, 24 Distillery Way in Newport, Kentucky. Thanks again to Matt Gunderman for appearing on the show. For more information about the University of Cincinnati's air care and mobile care, visit this episode's page at thedistillerpodcast.com for links to UC Health's air care and mobile care web and Facebook pages. Special thanks to Hannah Lowe and general manager of New Rift Distilling for welcoming us in. Drop by the distillery. See their amazing facilities. It really is beautiful. Host your next event there. Get married there. Take a tour. But whatever you do, make sure you taste some of their wares. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson, with co-production and booking from Terry Heist. We're mixed by Justin Golden. Our logo was designed by Scott Ryan. Download episodes, find more links and info, including photos of the guests and the locations, and get in touch with us at thedistillerpodcast.com. You can suggest people you think should be on the show. You can tell us where you think we should record the show or what you think we should drink while doing it. It's all at thedistillerpodcast.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.